0: I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, May third, two 2011. It's the science and technology
0: show that makes you smarter. Coming up, how the smart grid can help you save money and become greener.
2: Uh, we'll have computer applications where uh, you or I could log on to a website and see exactly how much energy we're using during what times of the day and how much it's costing us.
1: And we talk with co-authors of a new book about how climate change is threatening our health.
0: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in
1: science. Women of childbearing age may want to avoid canned drinks and foods, as well as foods in hard plastic containers. Well, that's the conclusion of the lead author of a study presented at a scientific meeting in Denver last weekend. The study found that infants whose mothers had high levels of BPA, or bisphenol A, early in pregnancy were twice as likely to experience wheezing, an asthma symptom, as babies whose mothers had low levels of BPA. And this was true only up to 16 weeks of gestation. There was very little association later in pregnancy. Bisphenol A is widely used in hard plastic food packaging and the lining of metal cans. Studies show that the chemical is detectable in more than 9 out of every 10 people in the United States. Experiments using mice previously suggested a link between BPA and asthma, but there's been scant research in humans. Adam Spanier, the lead author of the Penn State College of Medicine, advised women of childbearing age to consider avoiding products containing BPA. But he also said more research is needed to see whether changes should be made in public policy to reduce exposures.
0: This is a good week for checking out the night sky if the weather permits, particularly for the early risers among you. If you get up about half an hour before sunrise, that's around 5:30-ish in the Boulder Denver area, and look at the sky above the eastern horizon, you will get to see a chance to see Earth's four nearest planetary neighbors all clustered closely together in the sky: Mercury, Venus, Mars, and Jupiter. Venus will appear as the brightest of the four, Mars will be quite faint, perhaps needing binoculars to see it in the pre-sunrise dawn light. This is the tightest grouping of bright planets that has occurred yet in the 21st century. Over the next few weeks, you will be able to watch this four-point pattern change with the motion of the planets. The crescent moon will join the dance and pass through the pattern at the end of the month, May 29th through 31st. And... To add some fireworks to the spectacle, the next few days are the peak of the Eta Aquarid meteor shower. These meteors are caused by the Earth passing through the debris tail of Halley's Comet, which is also responsible for the Orionid meteor shower in October. The Eta Aquarids have that name because they seem to radiate primarily from the constellation of Aquarius, though they do appear all around the sky. The best time to watch for these meteors is one or two hours before sunrise, looking low to the southeast.
1: And on this day 39 years ago, the environmental organization Greenpeace was founded in Vancouver, British Columbia. You're tuned to How on Earth the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. So, what do cholera, malaria, pine beetle, asthma, and Lyme disease have in common? Climate change, for starters. Scientific studies and experiments are showing mounting evidence that climate change is linked to, if not fully responsible for, an increase in prevalence and intensity of many infectious diseases and other human illnesses. It may be no surprise to most of our readers, and we frequently discussed it on the show, that climate change is causing, or at least exacerbating, fires, droughts, extreme weather events like hurricanes, and much more, and that such events can wreak havoc on the environment and human health, but much less is known about the connection between climate change and human diseases. A new book sheds light on this disturbing connection. The book's called Changing Planet, Changing Health, How the Climate Crisis Threatens Our Health and what we can do about it. So we have on the phone the book's co-authors, Paul Epstein, a medical doctor and associate director of Harvard University's Center for Health and the Global Environment, and Dan Ferber, a science journalist with a PhD in biology, and he lives in Indianapolis. Dan and Paul, welcome to How on Earth.
3: Susan. Awesome.
4: It's
1: great to be here. So let's start. I wanted to ask, what what inspired you to write the book to begin with?
4: Well, uh... It's uh, climate change has been uh, often portrayed as a as a as a distant threat or somebody else's problem, uh, and uh, we wanted to uh, let people know that this is a problem that affects all of us. It's it's not about polar bears. It's not about penguins. It's about humans, and uh, we need to be aware of the uh, health impacts.
1: And you describe a lot of these scenarios, very personal stories, very human stories about this connection between climate change and human disease. Um, And it it really startled me, one of the statistics that you said in in 2005, the World Health Organization found that climate change was already causing 150,000 deaths and 5 million illnesses a year. And early on in the book, you start with a young Kenyan girl named, if I pronounce it right, Elena Githeko who got malaria. Could you um Paul, you were there. Maybe walk us through that scenario and, and Dan Ferber as well and, and what sort of what struck you there and what became it looks like the seeds for, for much more in the book.
3: Certainly. Uh, right. well. Go ahead, Paul. I mean this was a, a young girl that Dan visited actually and lived way in the mountains and it led to a discovery of mosquito larvae growing and breeding in ponds at very high elevations exactly where we're seeing glaciers retreat plant communities upward migrate we're seeing diseases like malaria dengue fever climb into the high lat- altitudes but i think it's important to realize that this is we're, we're experiencing these infectious diseases right here in the US Lyme disease
1: is most important, vector-borne disease, carried by ticks. Right. You mentioned a big case in, what, 2008 in New Jersey? Was that one of the first big ones?
3: Well, Lyme disease has been steadily increasing in the Northeast. It rose eightfold in New Hampshire over the past decade, tenfold in Maine. It's actually... Just this morning, a report that it's in present in all 16 counties, all the way to the border of Canada. Yikes. And this is way ahead of where our models, based on average temperatures, would have predicted because there's much more warming occurring in the wintertime and towards the poles.
1: And one thing I want to ask maybe, um, Dan Ferber so, how do you, how do scientists know that there's a causal link, not just a correlation between a lot of these, you know, where you see climate change and, and disease?
4: Yeah, in the case of uh, malaria, there's uh, a, a accumulation of evidence. Uh, first of all, the this is an area, the little girl you mentioned before, uh, Melania Githeko, lives in a an area near Mount Kenya, and this is an area that was traditionally malaria-free and uh, malaria-carrying mosquitoes have been documented in that area for the first time uh, I, by the scientist I actually uh, traveled around with uh, for the book. His name is Andrew Githeco. Right. And uh, in addition to that, uh, they're finding um, links. Uh, there, there are models that predicted those mosquitoes moving into that area Uh, taking into account what's known of malaria biology, malaria parasite biology, weather and climate. So these are really very precise, very accurate models that have predicted the changes that we're now seeing in that area. So uh, that's that's some good evidence that this is uh, really uh linked to climate change in east africa in that particular case
1: and then bring us home if you will here to the west i know you have many examples of more intense and and long-lasting droughts fires etc and pine beetle which unfortunately we're all too familiar with here in the west but how does that play out
4: yeah so uh pine beetle plays out, well it's a combination of the uh, pine beetle infestations which leave uh, dead trees and uh, the warming climate and the drying climate all together you leave uh, trees more likely to burn and so fire season has become longer and that is the that is a direct consequence of all of those uh, of the climate change and the trees are more likely to go up. So. Uh, documented increase in fires in size and uh, extent, and bringing that home to, to human health. It's the it's the fires, of course, can can harm people, but it's the it's the smoke, which is the biggest air pollution problem in the West overall. And the smoke can raise uh, the risk of uh, respiratory problems, aggravate asthma, bronchitis, and it can raise the risk of heart attacks. Um, so those, that's that's the connection with health. This is an indirect effect, and it's something that people haven't paid enough attention to the possible indirect effects of climate change on human health.
1: And on that note, um, Paul, for, uh, Paul, I wanted to ask you because you described in the book how, way back in 1994, you started trying to push the medical community that you're in to recognize the human health threat posed by climate change. Have you made much progress?
3: Well, there has been a lot of progress, actually, in the last year and a half, so the American Medical Association, the American Lung Association, the American Thoracic Society, the American Public Health Association all recognize climate change and made some basic statements supporting legislation for dealing with fossil fuels and are beginning to educate their members about this. Um, I, I do want to reiterate what Dan focused on because it's important to realize that forests are our life support systems and these pests that are affecting our forests means this is about our oxygen it's about our carbon dioxide and warming is allowing the movement in latitude altitude they're overwintering they're sneaking in more generations each year and the drying tries out the bark the rosin in the bark that allows them to dry that defends the trees against these bark beetles. So these forest pests, crop pests, marine pests, this is about our food, our forests. It's really our life support systems. These are ultimately the most important measures that underlie our public health.
1: And, in fact, you talk a lot in the book about um, some experiments on soybeans at University of Illinois. Is that seeing what's happening there as much of a threat to the whole agriculture system, the whole crop system?
4: That's an interesting story, Susan. At the uh, the original originally, when when uh, plant biologists and agronomists started looking at that, they thought with uh, carbon dioxide rising in the atmosphere, that uh, plants would grow faster and and crop yields would increase because carbon dioxide is plant food. And there was some early evidence of that in uh, greenhouse studies, but the uh, ex- field station at Illinois where, where I visited to, uh, to and we, we described in the book, what they're doing is creating conditions of the twenty mid-21st century uh, now and seeing, and what they're finding is that uh, a, uh, increased insect infestations of crops, uh, particularly soybeans in that area. So that gets at, will we be able to grow enough food to supply uh, uh, all, all six or seven billion of us, or maybe nine billion by mid-century? So it, and, and if there's not enough, you get uh, conditions like undernutrition and in, in certain areas, perhaps even famine. So it is very important to understand how much food we'll be able to produce.
1: Yeah, and we just have about a minute and a half. So I want to get into um, beyond the doom and gloom. You do talk yeah. some in the book about solutions. What, what do you see as some of the low-hanging fruit then? Well, let me go into instead uh, set of healthy solutions. We
3: need electric vehicles from leaf blowers to buses to trains but they have to be plugged into a cleanly powered smart grid that reduces demand, that allows the renewables, and then complemented by Healthy Cities programs with green buildings, rooftop gardens, tree-lined streets, biking lanes, open space, <laughs> permeable service, public transport, and smart growth. All of these measures we can do today, they can reduce the demands, they can increase the health of the cities, create jobs and industries, and push these climate-stabilizing technologies into the global marketplace.
1: And I I notice you call for um, a tax on financial transactions, but there's no mention in the book of a carbon tax. That was supported quite a bit by economists and others, but anathema in in Washington, (laughs) do you steer clear Mm -hmm. of it because of the politics, or you really think it's not feasible, Um, briefly?
3: Well, a carbon tax can be regressive and hurt poor people and poor nations. So we, we prefer something that, first of all, denationalizes the source of funds because nations are in debt and deficit. So a tax on financial transactions is something that would transfer money from the overbloated financial sector into clean industry. And a small tax would generate hundreds of billions of dollars, and that's the kind of money we need to to embark on this clean energy transformation.
1: Well, thank you so much. I know we've got to cut it off now. Hopefully we can continue another time. That was Dan Ferber and Paul Epstein, co-authors of the new book, Changing Planet, Changing Health. Thanks so much. Thank Thank you. Thank
3: you, Susan. Great beer.
2: You're
0: listening to How on Earth, the KGNU science and technology show that makes you smarter. I'm Joel Parker. As we strive to reduce the carbon footprint of generating electrical power, we tend to think about things like wind turbines on the prairie and solar panels on our roofs. But often, the best way to prevent a couple pounds of carbon getting into the atmosphere is just to avoid using a kilowatt hour. The smart grid is a technology to help us do just that we've heard a lot about the smart grid in boulder with Excel energy's research project here and as boulder mulls over the option of a municipal utility the concept becomes even more compelling reporter tom mckinnon sat down with davine Lim, a senior product manager at tendril tendril is a local boulder company devoted to developing the electric pipelines to make the smart grid work
5: David, to many people, the smart grid is a poorly defined concept. Can you get us started just by describing what it is?
2: Sure. Yeah, that's very true. People don't necessarily know uh, exactly what we mean when we say smart grid. Let, let's just look back a little bit. You know, over time, our electricity grid is something that's been with us for well over 100 years. And frankly, it's kind of showing the signs of its age. And, you know, some of, sometimes those symptoms can be rather dramatic. For example, the, the big blackout we had in the northeast part of the country several years ago. So the smart grid really is just that. It's an intelligent electric grid to try and bring more reliability and more cost-effective means to get electricity to our homes and houses and to provide means by which uh, utilities and consumers can kind of partner together to make sure that not only do we have reliability, but that we are using energy as efficiently as possible.
5: David, can you walk us through the smart grid uh, house of the future and, and tell us when are we going to see that Is it yeah gonna be, uh, soon yeah or so
2: let me just draw a couple of analogies you know uh, you and i as as drivers of cars we have we're used to seeing a speedometer telling us how fast we're going we're seeing a, a fuel gauge telling us how much gasoline we're using, but we don't really have that notion in our homes about how much electricity we're using. So we have a, a bill that arrives at the end of every month or so that tells us how much electricity we use, but it doesn't give us a feel for, on a day-to-day basis, how electricity is being used in in our homes. And that's kind of what Tendril provides as part of its set of offerings, applications in the smart grid area. Uh, we'll have computer applications where uh, you or I could log on to a website and see exactly how much energy we're using during what times of the day and how much it's costing us, kind of like that fuel gauge in our car provides. Uh, we'll have devices that can show us specifically how much individual appliances are using, and there will be uh, means by which utilities can actually control or monitor the electricity usage in our individual homes.
5: The average uh, household in the country spends about uh, $1,200 per year on electricity. How much could a, could a homeowner expect to, to save?
2: with an energy? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. Uh, on average, three to five is, percent is very common, but um, it depends on how much engagement a user has, how much interest they develop. And we've actually had a pilot program up in the Cape Cod area of Massachusetts where we employ other techniques such as having uh, the users set a savings goal. For example, they could choose to save 10% or 15% or maybe even more and by having a a goal-setting piece and providing information through the tendril software to these users about specific actions they can take to help them save energy we're seeing sustained savings uh, over nine percent.
5: All right to get the advantages of the smart grid am I gonna have to ditch my current appliances and buy smart ones?
2: No not at all Uh, although certainly we are partnering with appliance manufacturers for what they're we're calling smart appliances uh, no, in fact, uh, if we want to be able to monitor how much energy, say, your refrigerator uses, we can provide you what we call a smart outlet, and it allows you to plug it in between your refrigerator or whatever other appliance and the actual outlet, and we can tell you exactly how much energy that refrigerator or water heater is using. Okay, David, you, you convinced me. Uh, where do I buy this hardware? So right now we're partnering with utilities around uh, the country at different locales, and it's, it's kind of up to the particular utilities on... Uh, where and when particular uh, deployments of our technology get r- rolled out.
5: And what would it cost to outfit a home?
2: Yeah, again, that's uh, real dependent. Uh, right now, these deployments, because they're also being incentivized by programs in the, in the regulatory space by governments and state regla- regulatory boards, utilities are very much interested in bringing out these programs. So, in fact, uh, end user cost to you or me as homeowners is often low or no cost.
5: David, walk us through a hot July afternoon. Uh, everybody's coming home from work. They're turning on their air conditioning, turning on the lights, maybe even plugging in their electric uh, uh, car, and, and the grid is, is stressed to the breaking point. So, yeah. So how would a smart grid-enabled community avoid the blackouts that might happen otherwise?
2: Yeah, you bring up the key situation that occurs. So what we can provide are means by which utilities – can actually adjust the temperature on thermostats in uh, sets of homes, up or down a few degrees, to reduce the peak loads that are present on the grid. And what that does, it, it may allow them not only to avoid blackouts, but it might allow them to avoid having to bring on generation plants that cost extraordinarily high amounts to to bring online.
5: And if I'm going to let the uh, utility take over control of my air conditioner, am I going to get a lower rate as a result?
2: Yeah, that's very much a possibility um, by voluntarily signing up for such a program where you say, yeah, for a few days a year I'm going to let my utility control my thermostat by a few degrees, Overall, the Tendril platform will allow the, the utility to provide me a program where, overall, my cost of electricity is, in fact, lower. So um, not only am I saving electricity and saving energy overall, but I'm saving money.
5: David, we have about a minute left. Is there anything we left out or uh, any points you'd like to emphasize?
2: Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, yeah, many people do have questions about what the smart grid is and what, what's going to change on a, on a day-to-day basis um, as the smart grid becomes more part of our lives. Uh, it really is about being able to see and understand where our use of electricity is and how much uh, we're using on a day-to-day basis and and really engaging ourselves as a partner with our utilities to have an electricity grid that's more reliable, more cost-effective, basically being more efficient.
5: And can you point our listeners to a website to get more information?
2: Sure. Yeah, our website here at Tendril is www.tendrilinc.com. That was David Lim of Tendril. David, thanks for being on the program. Thank you, Tom.
0: And thanks to Tom McKinnon for that report. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Today's show is produced by Susan Moran, engineered by Ted Burnham, and additional contributions by Tom Yulsman. The executive producer is Joel Parker. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music by Bibio.
1: Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast. And if you're a musician, don't forget
0: about our ongoing contest for a new theme song. Check out the contest rules at howonearthradio.org slash contest.
1: Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.